Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, CEO of HW Media and your host for the Housing News Podcast. I literally just got off a plane and came into the Housing Wire office here in Dallas, Texas to record the intro for today's episode. I've been out in San Jose, California at the Mortgage Bankers Association Technology Conference all week. And on the back end of MBA Tech, I couldn't think of a more appropriate episode to drop than my interview with Matt Rocco, chairman of the Mortgage Bankers Association and also president of Collier's Mortgage. In today's conversation with Matt, we talk about how quickly the market is changing and how that impacts banks, both depositories and mortgage banks, and how that flows through to impact on loan originators. We take a very holistic view of the residential housing market. Given Matt's strong background in multifamily and CRE, we like to take an approach that connects what's happening in the rental market and how that impacts and relates to what we're seeing in the single family homeownership market. And finally, we take a look at current CRE outlooks with specific consideration given to the impact on small U.S. lenders and some of the news that we've seen in the market about GSE credit loss preparation. I hope you enjoy this episode today with Matt Rocco, chairman of the NBA and president of Collier's Mortgage. Matt, usually when you kick off a conversation. You ask, how's everything going? People are saying, oh, so busy. Things are moving so fast. And I think this might be actually one of those markets where um, things are moving so fast, it's worth talking about. So can we kind of kick off the conversation from from your vantage point of president of Collier's mortgage and MBA chair, kind of what you're seeing in terms of the speed of market, this fast moving market that we're all navigating in the last week of the, or at the beginning of the second quarter of 2023. Well, thanks, Clayton. And again, great to be here. I would like to start to your point about the how fast the market is moving. In fact, it isn't just the commercial real estate market or the capital markets, uh, the banking marketplace, but there's a lot of economies at play right now. In fact, many of them influenced uh, to, to your point about how rapidly things are changing. Uh, this, for many Consumers is their bank, and it's their bank portal for which they could move deposits in an instant. And we saw that most recently in SVB and followed up closely by Signature and Silvergate and others. Um, in fact, some influences as well in the CS transaction with UBS, in essence, being taken over in conservatorship uh, to UBS as the beneficial owner. But I think we need to recalibrate. I'm going to use that word throughout this discussion, Clayton our expectations of, of momentum and velocity, um, because there are, in fact, two different things. Capital, by and large, uh, for the last few years has been copious. It's been available in about every portal for consumer retail, direct and commercial real estate and capital markets. And what we need to do now is readjust to a whole bunch of conditions, including but not limited to new interest rates, price discovery and asset values, and then, of course, uh, what happened most recently in the last few weeks with SVB, followed by a number of other banks that, if you will, under stress or duress, take your pick. Uh, but because of how fast markets have changed and consumer demands and, of course, their uh, imprint on what banks can and can't do. I've seen some analysis of how quickly deposits moved and like rewind to the 
the most significant crisis in our recent history, the great financial crisis, if you measure the days or the time frame at which deposits moved in 2008, 2009, you can measure that in days and now that translates to hours. So like the amount of money that moved out of Washington Mutual happened over 48 days, what happened at SVB in 48 hours. So how do bankers start to contend with the fact that they don't have until Monday morning and like the Wall Street Journal print to make decisions. Um, it, it's actually uh, too bad that we didn't recognize as all of us use these to transact banking relationships, um, but that we didn't adjust sooner. In fact, it's almost to a point now um, I have great concern because what can the bankers do governed by um, regulatory concerns, by supervisory concerns, and now legislative concerns. If you were to pull up Bloomberg today, you'd see the hearings on SVB and others, you know, dealing with this. But in fact, I think, you know, again, Clayton, we need to use the word recalibrate ourselves to the expectations. Is this a supervision issue? Is it a regulatory issue? Do we need new legislation, for example, with the deposit guarantee, moving that up after the GFC uh, to 250000 from from Um, That takes legislative action. There are emergency things the feds can do um, to stop gap um, some of the, if you will, runs on banks. Um, But I'm afraid we also need to look at the regulators themselves, the same supervisors, and determine do they have the tools they need? And in fact, are they regulating the greatest risk to the banking system today? So there isn't an easy answer. If you were to ask the bank executive, it would almost be like the crisis de jour. Um, that they're having to deal with concern about deposits, concern about expressed or implies guarantees to those same uninsured deposits. And then, of course, the the, the crisis and confidence that they have um, with the banks, because the banking model, as you know, is set up, uh, quite frankly, to reward, you know, their largest depositors with advance of credit, um, with products, with lines and things of that nature. And when, by design or default, depositors are almost forced to, for economic preservation and safety and soundness reasons, to spread those deposits elsewhere, uh, it's going to be a challenge, uh, not just for the banks themselves that see them go, but moreover, um, to the borrowers who would see, presumably, uh, you know, restrictions and credits or advance rates or things that they might have, you know, again, because they have that large depository relationship. Back to my word, recalibration, we need to reset uh, what that looks like in the new world order of banking. Yeah. I mean, so much of the banking conversation gets focused in on the consumer side and, uh, and, but a lot of the biggest deposits, especially those outside of FDIC limits are, are held by businesses. And it, it killed me to hear some of the, the dialogue that it was irresponsible for businesses to keep deposits greater than FDIC limits with banks when even I run a company, a very small company that has payroll that exceeds FDIC limits in a payroll period. So like running outside of um, like being able to diversify across different uh, financial institutions um, before Intrify really entered the conversation wasn't really a possibility for for business operators and, and even consumers. I, I was in a branch recently opening a new banking relationship and to hit their minimum deposit amounts to like get the full benefits of for on the consumer side of like unlimited like all the transactions and ATM fees and waived everything. Like I'm out you're outside of FDIC limits. And uh so all of the incentives are being are being set up to to go against what we considered the the norm of safety in the past. Um, you know, a norm that we didn't think we really had to worry about. 
That's right. And, and, and again, we're, we're really dealing with um, yesterday's tools and today's rapidly changing market conditions, originally to your question. Um, and I think that unfortunately is going to cause legislative action, a regulatory action, and we have to be careful that we don't over-regulate the uh, middle market banking uh, environment into almost a financial utility. Because to your point earlier, they do provide uh, tremendous liquidity and credit support, uh, quite frankly, to most of uh, middle market America. And that's an, a huge economic driver uh, for our economy. In fact, uh, Goldman Sachs, I think, Clayton, it was last week, estimated that uh, governance and uh, some, if you will, uh, lending or credit extension uh, relooks would uh, shave a quarter to um, a half a percent off GDP. Uh, and that's just because of that economic wet blanket on on what it means for companies to grow and, um, you know, to expand. So there, there is great concern out there. And I think in and of itself, some of the disruptions is awkwardly helping the Fed in tame some of the economic growth. Um, it's just unfortunate that we had to do it uh, with a crisis like um, like the banking crisis that we went through and moreover, perhaps still going through, but I hope that we do find a stronger footing soon. I do believe it'll encompass all of the above though, regulatory, legislative, and supervisory action. And we'll just have to see where that plays out because um, you know some of the big, too big to fail banks have no interest or economic alignment uh, to serve that small to middle market consumer. And that's not their problem. In fact, it's not their fault. They're doing what they need to do within their regulatory uh, framework to be successful and produce positive shareholder returns. Uh, so I think it's very important that we balance, um, you know, updated guidance uh, in, in, of course, quality assurance and controls with uh, today's rapidly changing marketplace and consumer demands. The economics of small mid-market banking and specialty banking ha- have been set up to favor serving the the commercial client and uh so like that it just ha- it has to work it, it has to work and um we we all know that the the too big to fail institutions have some some business units that that can serve small and medium-sized businesses but they're not always incentivized or optimized to do that so like there's a there's an important role that players of all sizes fit so a lot of the, we understand that there's risk on the, the loan portfolio side and that's causing some of the concerns on the deposit side. But h- how is this current fast moving market and, uh, kind of disruption or, or, or tumult in the banking industry impacting the origination side of, of depository lending institutions today? So are, how are they? adjusting their their CRE or, or residential mortgage businesses as they contend with the challenges in the market? Uh, it, it's complicated because, you know, they're, whether they were in the warehouse lending to small and middle market IMBs, which produce just a, a, a significant amount of, of residential lending throughout the country, or whether it was through consumer direct or certainly in the CRE space, um, all those assets and you know, quite frankly, become taller trees in banks' portfolios right now uh, because of the decline in other uh, metrics that they have, whether it's their their total shareholder return, their stock price, their the assets that they have, and certainly driven by deposits. So again, back to recalibration, they need to determine what kind of bank will they be coming out of this. And I think you're going to see a lot of banks have to look very closely 
at those tall tree exposures, whether it's in CRE, consumer, uh, the consumer's under stress. And I think the way we've measured consumer coming out of the pandemic is wrong. I don't believe the, the Main Street consumer is as strong as, as people think they really are. I think some retail sales, uh, some of the increases in stability that we've seen there in retail sales and output is associated with inflation and not necessarily consumer discretion. I think they just have to buy some of the goods and services. So banks need to recalibrate that. What does that mean to their credit card book, their auto loan book, their housing book, and certainly commercial real estate? Because, you know, the notional amounts in commercial real estate are so significant. Yeah. If you think that the consumer is under more pressure than we understand quite yet, I think that would also imply that we we have we we might be in a a precursor to inflation falling off pretty quickly. To to me, the data shows that the strong wage growth of 2021 and 2020, the first half of 2022 are going to fall off pretty quickly in, in 2023. And there's sort of a, a spending hangover that that's going to happen or, or an inflation catch up when people start to see wage growth to decline and prices sustain from the last 48 months of, of inflation or 24 months of inflation. Do you, do you think that, that, um, that dynamic, if you agree, will influence the Fed action over the next couple quarters? Uh, yes. Um, first, I think the the 2% target is the wrong target. Okay. Uh, I don't know that we've had 2% inflation for a long time. I'm not sure that we even measure inf- inflation in this country properly. And I'm not sure some of the tools we use, back to your earlier comments about banking and the rapidly changing environment there, um, are actually germane to where we are today in the economic cycle, whether it's the Taylor rule, the Phillips curve or what have you. I don't think that they're reliable predictive indicators of what might be coming. Uh, so we need to be careful. When I grew up in the bond market, um, it was always said the bond market is never wrong. It just might be a little early. And yet we see conflicts between the equity market and forecasts and the bond market and what the Fed has done or expected to do um, is being, quite frankly, very disintermediated. Uh, so if we were to recalibrate back to that word, um, a, a true target inflation rate, and if that were closer to three or the low for threes, I think that would be appropriate. I think the Fed moved very quickly. Uh, there's no doubt perhaps they started too late and uh, had to play a big catch up. But the danger of what they did uh, was in plain sight. So it's hiding in plain sight when they said, we're going to take rates a quarter and then a half and then 75 basis points, and we're not going to stop until. So it's a little bit of a shame on the market for not adjusting uh, more quickly uh, to those, whether you're you know, managing duration or liquidity um, or, or your asset portfolios. Uh, you really needed to do that early on when the Fed you know, said that we're going to increase rapidly and stay there for a long time. I think, however, though, back to the mechanics of, of where we are in the Fed and what that means to inflation is, is just squarely in what you said. The consumer, in my humble opinion, is stretched. I do believe that credit will be curtailed um, and that will have not only uh, disinflation, but deflation uh, to some of the space. And quite frankly, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. So rents, whether you're in the office space, are declining rapidly. Uh, whether in the multifamily space, they can only uh, grow as fast as wages can grow and some other things, along with some of the supply uh, balances and counterbalances that are that are in place in the many economies of real estate and finance today. 
um, that we need to, to find, you know, a, a footing again. Um, but inflation, no doubt, will come down because it has to, because of some of those same stressors in the systems and some of the disintermediation we're going right now, going through right now. And then there's also a question on um, how strong is the consumer and where does this consumer come out? Where do they spend? Um, I think we'll always have those pockets of inflation and we'll have to be very careful in how we deal uh, with them, whether it's in, you know, medical, uh, whether it's in uh, some business services because of supply chain still challenges and disruptions. Um, but those are more isolated. And I think, you know, trying to uh, paint the economy, particularly the inflation economy, uh, with such a broad brush, quite frankly, is dangerous and perhaps even destructive to parts of the economy. Interesting. So, Matt, in this conversation, I really do want to dig into some of your viewpoints on residential and commercial real estate lending, specifically into some of the issues we're starting to see pop up in, in office and multifamily. But I want to pause for a second and kind of go back and tell the audience your history in the industry. And I, I think when we started coordinating this interview, you were you were in a in a previous role at at Grandbridge, and you've you've recently stepped in to a, a new role leading Collier's Mortgage, and you're also serving as the MBA chairman. So uh, we'll come back to the MBA chairman, but tell us a little bit about your career as a in the lending ecosystem and what's kind of led you to this most recent role at Collier's. Uh, yeah, sure, Clayton. Um, listen, and I'll tell you, it's it's one of the most boring stories you'll ever hear. Um, <laughs> it was really just born out of being surrounded by great people. So it starts with, you know, a, a great and supportive family uh, and friends, and then grew that into an environment of business, to your point, for which I was uh, part of the foundation and building a company for 24 years. I'm very proud of that. Uh, but the market's changed and uh, the dynamics of, of the beneficial owner of that enterprise, as well as expanded and more comprehensive opportunities that I saw necessary in service to our clients. Um, so took the opportunity to uh, come on over to Collier's. And, and again, it is uh, so fortunate for me to be proud of, of what I was part of building again for decades. And then also a great opportunity to see uh, you know, what, what we have in front of us today at Collier's. Um, but my background is, is like many folks in the capital market space has been, you know, in, in certainly the bonds, the restructuring, the origination, the servicing, the asset management production, and then in leadership. And uh, it's within that framework, which is quite wide, but always concentrated around capital markets or commercial real estate. And now as part of the MBA and other trade groups, the residential marketplace, um, something that I've I just feel honored to be a part of. Uh, first of all, it's an economy of wonderful people uh, doing wonderful things for the businesses and communities for which we serve. Well, at the same time, uh, being able to, I think, have a positive impact on, um, on what we can do, again, for our teammates, for the communities we serve and the businesses that we build. Um, so I've just been a, a very, very small part of that, but it's always you know, with um, a, a great group of friends and supporters that gives you the opportunity uh, predicated on past success and performance. And I would just say that that's been the cornerstone uh, for me as I move forward in kind of my career journey. Most recently at your at your prior firm, were you entirely focused on multifamily and has, has Collier's kind of stepped you into different asset classes or how, how has that kind of focus shifted? Yeah, no, we were not. We actually were a comprehensive provider of capital markets, products and services. Um, but we did it, you know, I would say 
reflecting market conditions. And when the market and the investors, providers and users of capital for which we represent were, you know, predominantly focused on multifamily because it was the hottest investment rock out there, uh, generating the best returns, uh, risk adjusted or otherwise, and capital availability was extraordinary. Um, we kind of just found our way to that, but but always representing the commercial economy, which included, um, you know, you know, whether it's office, retail, industrial, or special purpose properties or things of that nature. Now, it is true, however, though, being a part of an international company with about 18,000 teammates in 65 countries around the world with very deep capital markets, uh, programs, products, and services that we can deploy as a principal or advisory on top of uh, the other lending that we do <clears throat> through our correspondent and or proprietary models is extraordinary. And it is in part because it's not a, a an unregulated environment, but a different regulated environment from those uh, under like an FDIC uh, scope of, of supervision. Um, so it's just, it's different, uh, broader capabilities, um, enhanced products and services, and uh, look forward to building that out because it's a very exciting time, not just in the industry, but to be a part of Collier's. Yeah, it's de definitely uh, an interesting time. And I'm sure you stepped in at a time when I'm sure you anticipated some interesting responsibilities. Uh, I think you probably had a pretty good vantage point as to some of the challenges, not not all the challenges, not the SVB failure, but a vantage point of some of the challenges we'd see in in 2023 and in Q4, we were already seeing Fannie Mae starting to, to write down some, some credit losses on, on multifamily loans and, you know, signal for, um, some loan losses in, in 2023. How did the changing market dynamics influence your desired, desired next step and influence the, the career decision you were making and kind of, you know, give you some intuition as how you'd be spending your time in the coming years? For me, it, it had to be surrounded by very comprehensive products and services. The market is changing rapidly. Capital needs um, for providers and users is, is changing by the day. And what I did see was an economy that was going to decelerate in all aspects, including commercial real estate, and being able to provide gap equity, structured finance products and services to fill that gap, while at the same time having direct and indirect equity capabilities uh, was a positive differentiator that I knew our clients in the market needed. Um, so it was a very easy decision. And when it's a right cultural fit and you have a superior platform um, with great opportunity for growth, a lot of blue sky, if you will, um, that's really the fun part. The more challenging part for which you talked about is those are difficult times. In fact, it's uh, because of the black and blue marks that I have and, and others in the industry that we can learn from some of the mistakes made, whether it be the GFC or whether it be through other points of disintermediation in the capital markets, real estate markets, commercial and residential included, that we need to learn from so as not to repeat them. And um, first and foremost, it's about liquidity. Liquidity sets asset values. You know, by and large, um, you know, when interest rates went to zero uh, over the last, you know, 24 months, if you will, even a year ago, uh, Clayton interest rates were effectively, I think so far, was 25 basis points. And uh, the Fed was just beginning their march on higher rates. Um, there are no business cycles. And asset values, quite frankly, uh, grow too far too fast. And I think we have to, again, 
uh, adjust, recalibrate ourselves to those changing market conditions of uh, discipline and credit in underwriting. And then quite frankly, having the equity capital readjust their return expectations again to a new interest rate environment. So that that's you know challenging, but but I think with um, the platform that we have and with the experience we have, uh, we feel very well suited in serving and advising our clients on those uh, uh, difficult but necessary adjustments that need to be made. Uh, you know, at Housing Wire, we're much more focused on the the single family side of the the residential ecosystem. But I am based in Dallas, Texas, a, a market where, um, which is incredibly incredibly active hub for multifamily operators and investors. And some of the multifamily folks that I that I speak with are, you know, st- starting to get the sense or, or get the inbound calls that there's some. GPs, some some operators out there that are so far from positive carry, they're they're bringing portfolios to to market right now, and um and it could be an active year for for buying and selling multifamily assets, but uh those deals will need creative financing sources as the the LPs of the last run aren't necessarily as excited about putting capital to work in in this market. Is, is that the kind of deal that um? Uh, I, I don't want to say Collier's, but like lenders like Collier's can be creative in with with gap financing or, or how, how like where, where do you come into play in this type of market? Uh, yes, Collier's can. So full stop there. We have the products and services and we're developing new innovative capital solutions right now to meet market demand for this. But others can as well, Clayton. And I will tell you that you nailed it. I mean, quite frankly, that equity needs to adjust. So here's the deal. We bought the deal at $10 in early 2021, perhaps. It's now worth eight, uh, but because we perhaps overpaid at the time and cap rates were so low, um, you know, we were only able to borrow six. So we still have, if you will, that that positive margin of safety between the lender and what I'll say the equity, but that doesn't help the equity that gets wiped out to the $2 in that example, if you will. So the equity, unlike the GFC, is going to take the hit. The question is, will that margin of safety prevail? Is it enough? That $4, um, or does it get eroded, evaporated, or turned into some sort of uh, future hope certificate for those investors? I I actually subscribe to the future hope certificate. You're going to need white knight equity or structured finance vehicles to come in to recapitalize these transactions. While there may be some equity, the, the V, if you will, in net asset value is hard to determine right now. Investment sales have been slow. I do think investment sales pick up, up by necessity, driven by maturities. So I don't think we're going to see a lot in 2023. Um, I know there's a maturity uh, list out there produced actually by the MBA, but I think uh, built-in one-year extensions will be the norm. And we will not be able to kick the can like we did post-GFC, um, but we will allow you know, if you will, some owners to uh, reconstitute equity, test the metal of that equity, bring in that white knight equity um, so as not to, um, you know, have for sales and liquidations, which immediately turn into lower asset values and in losses for those same uh, credit holders, banks or what have you. Uh, So I do think it's going to be a challenging year in that regard. And quite frankly, Clayton, someone's got to take the hit. And I see the hit coming to the equity. And quite frankly, in a capital markets economy, that's where it should be. Well, it's going to hit the 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 general partner carried interest first before it even hits the primary equity that came to the deal. And I, that's what's my, like, I guess, has me 
not concerned, but like sensing a transaction flow because misaligned incentives like do change markets. And even if the lender's safe, primary equity is primarily safe. If the GPs aren't incentivized to run this asset for two, three, five years, um, you know, that, that can like create a market where there's like more transactions. You know, when, when interest rates did go to zero commercial real estate awkwardly, um, you know, offered a, a higher yield alternate fixed income type environment for investors. And while there are copious amounts of capital in the system looking for a home, commercial real estate is an important diversifier, found some of that capital. I'm not still sure that commercial real estate, um, and I'd like to differentiate between the residential side, although there was some of that, um, I don't think they could spell CRE. So I think we're going to see a rotation of those same uh, yield hungry investors out of CRE beginning in 2024, lasting through 2026. And that will cause pain. We'll have to replace those equity interests or those equity will be completely diluted um, with new equity to come in just to refinance. So again, back to that example, you still have a margin of safety or some equity to the purchase price, but that's now been uh, discounted to current market values. Oh, and by the way, even though you only borrowed $6 from the bank, you don't even have positive cash flow right now because of current interest rates, because of hedging costs, derivative costs, or things of that nature. So you actually need the new equity come in just to refinance the loan. And that's going to be more challenging for investors that really aren't, if you will, uh, committed to the space. So I think we'll see a rotation out to more real estate savvy, friendly, or understanding uh, investors that understand the capital composition, the capital call needs, the management expertise, and of course, duration and lack of liquidity in the investment class itself. Hi, this is Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief of HW Media, and I'm talking to Ed Messman, CEO at Root Capital, about their shared value investment program. Ed, how is Root Capital creating new homeowners? Yeah, the shared value investment that we created helps prospective new home buyers by adding up to 25% to their down payment in exchange for an equity position in the house. By doing that, you effectively lower the monthly cost of homeownership to a level that's affordable and within their budget. Thanks, Ed. And listeners can find out more at rook.capital. And if risk-free yield is a lot higher than it was two years ago, does that put an additional layer of pressure on on asset prices? If if investors can get fixed income or treasury or muni yields in the four or five percent range, like they're definitely not going to take a risk-adjusted yield um, for something only a few points higher. No, negative leverage is real right now. Um, again, driven in part by the amount of floating rate debt. And uh, that asset valuation increase that occurred, uh, and it really began in 17, but accelerated uh, with low interest rates and copious amounts of capital in the system. And, and yeah, that, that's going to be a real challenge uh, to see where that ultimately plays out and, um, and, and where it lands. So the Mortgage Bankers Association that, that I am most familiar with and our exposure via housing wire is this owner occupied single family residential market. But I understand the trade organization represents the entire mortgage industry. 
I'm interested in like kind of your capacity as a commercial real estate uh, lending and r- real estate professional, how you're like, how do you come into the larger organization and, and kind of play a role impacting and, and representing lenders of, of all different shades and strategies from depositories to uh, and IMBs on the resi side to the different types of lenders on the CRE side? Um, it's a great question. Thank you. And, and I can only do it with the support of the MBA and all the team members and staff there. Uh, that help with um, not just the direction, but the, the foundation of what it means to service those uh, 2,100 member companies throughout the country. It's truly extraordinary, but, but please, Clayton, it's not that difficult. Uh, with that backstop of support and then with awareness and knowledge of the capital markets, uh, real estate as an investment, whether you're a residential owner or whether you're a commercial owner or investor, um, you know, the, 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 thesis is about the same, you know, looking for positive longer term returns, looking for opportunities for growth or or asset, either preservation or enhancement, uh, some of the associated tax benefits with both residential and commercial. Uh, So it's been um, that part of it foundationally is quite easy on the capital market side in times of disintermediation, first driven by COVID, second driven by housing value and, and if you will, affordability and, and the challenges all around affordable, both in uh, single family and multifamily is, um, is interesting, but we also represent those commercial interests in the MBA. So think about the office that we're going to go through and um, kind of the unwinding of what that looks like. And then also uh, on the single family side, we talked about, uh, you know, single family homes for rent, build for rent communities and what that means to housing supplies. And then, Quite frankly, there's there's something else which is fascinating to me in just doing some quick research. Um, you know, what happens with the priority of payments? And I, I'll speak specifically to the residential side, um, but I was with some friends at a, at a roundtable meeting recently and they said, hey, did you know that um, this car company has something and they, if you ever miss a payment uh, past the grace period, that they can shut down your car and you can't start it? Oh, and by the way, the cell phone companies have those same, you know, rights, if you will, uh, by by force when you sign those agreements. I heard there's a car company that actually is like working on self-driving, where if you like miss a payment, the car just returns itself. Okay, and that's scary too. Uh, but but back to the priority of payment. I mean, you know, we're now challenged. Years ago, before the GFC. As you know, Clayton, a lot of people would would pay their rent or pay their mortgage because there were no alternatives. But instead, we've come to a point for which if you take my car and you take my phone, I can't live anyways. I got to get to my job to pay partial rent or partial mortgage payment. I need a phone so I can communicate with my boss or my family, uh, my caregivers or things of that nature. So I think we're really going to test that. And, And some of that introduced um, through forbearance uh, during the, the COVID crisis. And, and I think that's going to be a real interesting intersection of uh, commitment and uh, financial ability and willingness to support credits. Uh, more so focused on the residential side. On the commercial side, most of the loans uh, outside depositories are non-recourse. So it is a, uh, quite frankly, a bilateral agreement to say, I'm going to make my payments until I don't want to make my payments anymore. And then I'm going to give you back the keys and you can foreclose. 
And, and there are asset classes, most notably office, that are going to suffer that fate as a result of equity investors saying, you know, um, it doesn't make economic sense for me to feed this beast. Um, I'm not going to get the return. It's not likely I'm going to see the value, not just in my investment holding period, uh, but before the asset is, is actually functionally obsolescent as well. We are going to test all of those, not just because of the cycle we're in or the zero percent interest rates that we're coming out of, um, but because this business cycle now driven uh, by a combination of all those effects and forces uh, are going to drive this to occur. And, and there will be losers. And, um, you know, in banking, you know, we, we really did test what a SIFI meant when you're, you know, running around with First Republic and then SVB and what have you. Um, and, and it's going to be very interesting to see how far that waterfall flows down to the consumer, uh, you know, testing the metal of, of, you know, will we have forbearance programs and economic disruptions? And what if, you know, we have all these office properties in the banks, although their CECL requirements require that they dispose of the note, they're actually impairing not just their balance sheet, but the markets itself by, you know, pushing back some $80 billion this year in commercial uh, office loans that are going to be TDRs and or in default or whatever. Those are the things that are, quite frankly, new territory for the market. Uh, we're going to need to quickly adapt to those changing market conditions um, so we don't make a bad situation much worse. It all comes back to those fast changing market conditions. So as we're talking about your capacity of chairman at the NBA, in relation to the constituents, I've always given a lot of thought to the fact that I don't, I don't think the the resi mortgage folks pay a lot of attention to what's happening in the CRE world. How closely are the CRE constituents, specifically multifamily, kind of paying attention to the single family residential market? And are there certain data points or trends or dynamics that they pay the most attention to that might influence their investment uh, theses or, or feelings on the market? Because we do know that rental housing is often a stepping stone to to owning property and moving into that owner-occupied property. But we've also seen trends in the last few years of more people choosing to rent versus choosing to rent as a stepping stone. So I'm kind of curious of how that owner-operator, investor, cons- those constituents on the multifamily side think about the single-family owner-occupied market and, and how much it influences their thinking. Uh, they most certainly do because you're right in the continuum of housing, you know, they want to know, um, will good renters sometimes hopefully become good homeowners and what does that look like? I think some of the work the both agencies have done under the direction of FHFA and credit counseling and support and things of that nature are, are quite positive uh, for the marketplace today in building not just better renters today, but better homeowners tomorrow. But in the commercial multifamily space, no doubt, um, you know, the safety and soundness in, the, in residential is is key. It is ensuring that there are safe, safeties and affordable housing in markets that provide stable communities. And, you know, that means and you're, you're in the commercial space that your workers have a place to live. Um, it means that your retail centers, you know, have, um, if you will, uh, clients close by um, that with, you know, that type of housing low crime rates and good schools and go down the list of all the things that matter um, that really are impactful. And in, in the the apartments to the single family specifically, however, though, um, it's just that building block. It is uh, understanding 
um, you know, when um, demographic changes occur, um, who will be the winner? Will it be the residential side and the single family side? Well, you know, supply is is hard to come by, difficult to build, and without true incentives, um, I don't know that there's going to be a lot of economic opportunity to meaningfully add uh, new supply to the marketplace to deal with the affordable housing. And then also with the demographic changes, you know, uh, younger folks today change jobs every three to five years. And I think we're going to test that again, particularly in this market with associated downsizing and recalibration companies need to take with their workforce to work from home and a whole bunch of other things um, that will have to play themselves out. And of course, that's a direct impact on the multifamily side. So, um, I don't know that they're they're always attached at every touch point of the capital market side, but they're absolutely congruent, and uh, both sides would be cheerleaders for the others in stability, safety, and soundness. Yeah, according to Altus Research, there's less than four hundred and twenty-five thousand active single-family listings right now, which, by our measures, tells us there's a massive supply demand mismatch, and we don't have enough single-family houses. Do do multifamily operators, investors kind of read that as a positive signal for demand on the rental side? And and it feels kind of counter to the fact that it feels like we're seeing rent growth slow and, and seeing softness in the multifamily market. So it feels like I would be anticipating those two things moving uh, against each other, but it's like uh, I don't know. How do you how do you read the relationship between single family inventory and rent growth? Uh, both trouble. Uh, the, a lot of the uh, multifamily uh, deliveries that we've seen um, in the last few years have been in the Class A space, and over the next twenty-four months of the nine hundred thousand units, uh, it's I think it's like seventy-five or eighty percent are again in that Class A space. So there's you know a crowd. Uh, there of in what happens when a market is overpopulated, you know, rents decline, concessions kick in, but it, it actually, in defense of uh, the developers and investors in that space, they had no other choice. Land prices were high, interest rates were low. So, you know, asset values grew and, and you needed to, you know, build luxury to get the rents. There was still positive wage growth and, you know, a number of other things that kind of drew that. Um, now that is very attractive and certainly the rental housing in the multifamily space investors uh, know and appreciate that. But again, I'm challenged right now to tell you that there's a lot of markets where it makes sense uh, with today's inflation still in some building costs, high land prices, uh, labor shortages, particularly for certain trades where it really makes economic sense to your point of decelerating rents, increasing expenses, and a number of other things to put shovels in the ground a further wet blanket on supply. Um, so it, it's really tricky out there. I would characterize the commercial multifamily space as a bit of stagflation. Operating expenses are up, building costs are up, permit costs are up. Um, you know, we, you know, GNA taxes, insurance go down the list, but in fact, uh, rents are stable to declining in some markets. Well, on the single family side, it, it is, it is still exceedingly expensive to build. Um, there's a lot in, not in my backyard syndrome, still out there. We, well, we have some federal support for increased affordable housing. We really don't have it, practically speaking, at the state and local levels to really make a difference. And, um, and just, you know, the math says uh, we're, the deficiency in single-family homes is this much. 
Um, but you can't cure that specifically uh, with the residential side just because of household formation and growth and a number of other things. So it's going to be really tricky for a while to positively intersect those two. And um, it, it likely, unfortunately, uh, is something that we'll always be working toward uh, because um, I don't see uh, a balance uh, to that probably in my business lifetime. Yeah. And I think the dynamics that encouraged or required luxury development on the multifamily side are, are also impacting the construction and new home construction and, and single family. The, a lot of the, the builder incentives are pushed toward creating luxury or, or high, higher end homes. The starter home is not exactly a business model that works right now. And when you hear some of the commentators and pundits and um, folks talk about solutions to bringing uh, more inventory to market. One of the ideas that was really popular for the first few months of this year was taking all of these empty office buildings and converting them to residential. I have my views, but uh, let's hear yours, Matt. Do you think we're going to see a, a massive reconversion of, of office to resi? No, nor should we. Uh, they don't make economic sense by and large. You know, let's take the population. And, and, and I would say of the total office population of the $4.5 trillion commercial real estate marketplace, office represents about 30%. That's a lot. It's a lot of inventory. And much of that inventory is actually functionally obsolescent or class B or below. A number of things that make it uh, more challenging just to upfit. But that doesn't mean that conversion is the answer. Because think about the floor plates in office. I mean, you, you, you actually need windows in residential. You need um, bathrooms. You need, you know, go down the list of just common sense of what you need in residential, even in SROs or affordable seniors housing or whatever. You need these things that, are, that come at a, a premium to convert. So I think at some point, uh, some of the inventory that people are talking about, and it sounds good and it's very interesting to talk about it, but you're talking about that 10% true population that makes sense uh, to convert. And I think they should. And I see opportunities for affordable housing, workforce housing. I see opportunities for vocational training and mixed use developments. But again, it's a de minimis part of the overall landscape. And then on the uh, the balance of it, quite frankly, um, and I, I've said this throughout my career many times, uh, office is characterized as being overbuilt. And I would submit to you that it's just under destroyed. It needs to go away. It does not make sense as an office building anymore. Now, what does it make sense for? That's for the investors to decide. But you're going to see asset values go from those functionally obsolescent buildings from a dollar, if you will, to maybe 20 cents, uh, maybe even less. And they're going to be lenders who are just like, gee whiz, do I really want to own an asset for which it, you need about 70 percent occupancy to break even having to give concessions? I don't know if there are enough not-for-profits out there and, and, you know, if you will, worthy local causes who can pay just a little bit in rent uh, to support even the operating cost of this asset. Well, insurance is very expensive. It even gets more expensive when buildings are unoccupied, interestingly enough. Taxes are still up there on a relative basis. Water, sewer, go down the list where inflation still exists uh, in a meaningful degree. Um, they make no economic sense. Really interesting. So under, under demolished, um, that is a, that is an interesting concept. And when that time comes, uh, and I don't know if, do you think the barriers to that time are, are right now the owners of the assets or is this municipalities that are kind of blocking these, um, 
rebuild projects, not, not conversion projects? Uh, I wouldn't blame it on the government at this point, really. I, I think they're, they're separate. I would submit to you, though, it is the owners, ultimately, perhaps even the bondholders or the BPs investors or the special servicers that actually uh, force this to occur. And I'll use that term specifically force, uh, but it's the maturities, uh, Clayton, that is the catalyst for this. Because many office buildings, actually, even some of those that I've described as, you know, being, you know, functionally obsolescent or even, you know, moderately economically viable um, are still positive debt coverage. So the investor is not going to default on that until they have to put new capital in the transaction. But when that occurs, and it's usually at a right sizing at maturity uh, with a decline in asset value, the old falling knife expression, um, investors likely will say, well, what do we need to do? Uh, and for a vast majority, the, those asset values need to decline. It's not the 30%, it's the 60% until you get to some uh, point of either regentrification or alternate use or adaptive reuse or things of that nature. Uh, but you need to reset the values for that to occur um, to have any economic upside. Interesting. So Matt, as we, as we wrap up today, I want to come back to a question about your role as chairman of the NBA. So there's a set term for, for this position, correct? Yes. One year as uh, the chair. And then on the ladder, there's uh, one year in each as a uh, vice chair and chair elect. So as you kind of look forward to your, your time in the chair role, and then your time as chair uh, post chair, what does success look like for you? What do you want to accomplish in, in this period where you have an opportunity to, to make an impact on the industry? Uh, I'm glad you used that word success because I do think it's important to define success. Otherwise, you'll never know if you're on the road to achieve it. Uh, so what we did is we mapped out a strategy for affordable housing. And this is building upon uh, some things that my predecessor did, Susan Stewart, in building generational wealth and home ownership and uh, Christy Furco in the Home for All Pledge, and then my commitment to affordable housing in the rental space, but also the rental space, which does include single family, as you might expect. Um, and it's really, again, that uh, leadership continuum of, of, of being able to recognize that affordable housing challenges, not just big A, but workforce housing is going to be critical, uh, not just to the communities which we live and work, um, but, but ultimately the country. Um, I think there's so much at stake. So my commitment today is to break down the barriers, to meet with legislative leaders, to meet with regulatory leaders, whether it's FHFA, whether it's state and local governments, or even at the federal level, to find ways that we can, I would say, reduce um, the silly barriers that prevent uh, us from putting needed new supply through density bonuses, public-private partnerships, uh, tax-exempt or structured bond products. Um, to the marketplace. Much of that, however, though, Clayton, is building upon existing policies that exist um, that, that, that really just build upon, for example, an opportunity zone concept for spot opportunity zones. Um, I think that there's uh, there are things that we can do in the local government in some housing developments that require curbs and gutters. Well, I'm sorry, but everybody likes them, but do we really need them at the cost of that? You know, when we look at uh, what it costs to develop both single family and multifamily and 35 to 40 percent uh, is associated with impact fees, uh, regulatory guidance and some of the things local to municipal and state governments. I'm not suggesting we can eliminate all of that, but even if we cut it down 30, 40 percent, um, if we were to do that in a 
public-private partnership or through investor-developer models. That creates supply. Supply in and of itself presents opportunities. So I think that that's what I want to do today and throughout the balance of my term as chair. Uh, but that commitment is unwavering, Clayton. So that will go on uh, post-chair and my role on the board of the MBA and other trade organizations uh, because I, I really do believe it's it's one of the the biggest challenges facing our community. I mean, if, if you don't want to deal with affordable housing in your backyard, you really won't like homelessness in your front yard. And we have, unfortunately, cities uh, around the country that are facing that today. Um, and I'm not going to get into the blame game, whether it's political or whether it's, um, you know, environmental or local or what have you, but it's probably all the above. And what we need is dedicated leaders who will break through that and really make sure that people understand having affordable housing supports uh, stable communities. Um, I would say positive matriculation for uh, people in communities to advance and be part of, you know, a greater share of the American dream. While at the same time, reducing crime and creating uh, uh, greater economic opportunities, uh, property values. And, um, and I think that goes a long way to, uh, to what we all want. So um, that's a long answer, but it's not going to change. And I expect to be doing that uh, even in my retirement because I'm committed to do so. And I've been very fortunate uh, to be a part of uh, industry trade organizations like the MBA and others um, that have granted me uh, privileges to do that in concert with them. Well, Matt, I want to see you be successful in this mission. So please let me know if there's anything we can do, I can do to help. Uh, I think really appreciate this dynamic conversation on the on the built world, real estate across different asset classes. I think the, the relationship between office and apartment and multifamily and single family residential is, is fascinating and something that doesn't get a, enough conversation about the interrelatedness of the assets and, and the loans. Uh, so thank you for helping shine some light on these relationships. Well, absolutely. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here and you reach out anytime. Otherwise, just keep the good work you're doing informing consumers uh, about what the opportunities are, but the challenges as well, and then bring together a group of thought leaders to help think through those and see what we can do to affect positive change. Calling all mortgage title and insurance leaders. With interest rates shutting down your refinance business, your relationship with your real estate partners is more important than ever. HW Media wants to help you deepen relationships and find success in this competitive purchase market by inviting you to attend Gathering of Eagles. Real Trends Gathering of Eagles is the real estate industry's premier event, bringing together leaders from the most successful brokerages in the country. For the first time ever, this closed event is open to our full audience. Check out the show notes to find out more or head over to realtrends.com to purchase your ticket today. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.